I think a lot of folks in our generation or near it have mm-hmm. a similar experience where that history just was never talked about. So I think being able to make the work is also another way of sort of processing, but also understanding everybody has their different histories around it. Hello, print friends, and welcome back. Ronaldo and I took a much-needed break over the last couple months of 2023, and we are thrilled to be back with you again. And, as always, I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak with people around the world about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. This episode is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, and we are delighted to kick off 2024 by letting you know about their new product, the Speedball Spinback. Designed by the talented artist Alex Carmona, this tool allows you to hold your wood block securely in place for carving while easily rotating the block around as needed. You'll save your non-dominant hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder for many more years of happy carving. With the Speedball Spinback, you don't need to waste energy holding down your block. It can all go to the joy of carving. Find out more at speedballart.com. My guest this week is Lois Harada. We talk about Lois's journey to printmaking and letterpress, from RISD to a commercial print shop her invaluable insights in how to be a working artist through diversification, making work about her grandparents' incarceration during World War II, and the penny press as printmaking. Hi, Lois. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for agreeing to let me steal a little bit of your Saturday. And as we were talking about off-air, we've really been orbiting in the same circles. We've probably met in passing. We have a lot of mutual, wonderful connections. And I'm just really excited to get to spend the next hour getting to know you and your work more and sharing it with print friends because it's amazing work. So thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Hello. Hello, print friends. That was (laughs) the right number of hellos. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive in, please let people know who you are, where you are, what you do. Sure. I'm a printmaker and artist based in Providence, Rhode Island, on the ancestral homelands of the Narragansett peoples. And primarily my work is based in letterpress printing. I'm always excited to hear Hello Print Friend because you have a lot of letterpress printers, which I feel like are sometimes, you know, in the corner of the mm-hmm. printmaking world. So my day job is actually at a commercial letterpress print shop called DWRI Letterpress, also in Providence. And then I've also been really lucky to start as an adjunct uh, faculty member at RISD. Uh, This is my second year teaching in graphic design and the printmaking department. Beautiful. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Yeah, we're going all the way back. Um, So I'm originally from a town called Kaysville, Utah, which is a little north of Salt Lake City. And I remember growing up always being interested in making things and craft, which I think stemmed from my mom, who is a big quilter, big sewer, uh, big project person. And so taking that interest in making things, when I got to high school, I was really lucky to 
be in an art studio that was run at a public high school by a Pratt MFA print major. So he had a litho setup. We had etching, things that you don't normally see at the high school level. So I got lucky and spent four years getting into the weeds in that technique and thought, okay, this is really cool. I like the making of a print and the technique, the detail. How can I further that? So he suggested that I apply to RISD and I applied there in the University of Utah and ended up at RISD with another high school classmate. And we were actually freshman roommates, which was really nice. And I think for me, coming into RISD, I sort of was treating it as the world's most expensive technical college and Uh thinking, how can I get to know these techniques even further? You know, I know I like litho. I know I like etching. How can I get to a point where I could eventually think about working as a printer in an editioning shop? Not fully realizing, of course, that that is a really hard career path because there aren't a lot of those slots. And I wasn't, you know, as connected into the the art world, if that makes sense, and not quite ready just to move to New York. So after graduation, I was really fortunate to be able to teach printmaking at a community print shop called AS220, which if anyone has been to Providence, hopefully you've seen that shop. It really keeps a lot of printmakers in Providence working and really cheap shop access, which is so important after graduating, as I'm sure we all know that Mm -hmm. you that access turns off so fast and you can't figure out where to print. So I was teaching at AS220 a few classes and then started working at the letterpress shop where I am still to this day. So I think it's my 14th year there now. Beautiful. So one of my questions was for you, what it was about Providence that kept you there. It sounds like part of your decision to stay was just sort of, it offered opportunities for printing. And like you said, you just weren't in a place where you're thinking, all right, let's go make another big change. Let's go to New York and see what we can do. Is that right? Totally. So I think Providence is really special in that there is a huge community of printmakers here. So a lot of those printmakers have gone through AS220, but there are also a bunch of other satellite print shops. So my current studio is at an artist collective called The Works, which has a full print shop, but there are a handful of other shops that have community access as well. And I think you can tell how many printmakers are in a city by how cool the posters are. So (laughs) Providence has always had a really good poster scene for bands, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it just felt like there were a lot of similarly minded people in Providence. And it was pretty affordable to to be able to land somewhere while trying to figure out how to pay back my loans, too. Yeah, absolutely. I was in Providence visiting a friend who had went there for painting and she probably graduated in maybe 2006 or 2007. Mm -hmm. And because it was 2006 and 2007, she was on a roller derby team because this is what we did (laughs) in 2006 and 2007. But I do remember that the graphics around all the roller derby gigs were very high quality. So like band posters and roller derby posters have hot game in Providence. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And so right, right now, so you've got your work that you do through the college, you've got your The Works, which sounds like your personal practice studio. And then you also are at this DWRI letterpress. So how did you come to that? And and what do you do there? 
Sure. So DWRI stands for Dan Wood, Rhode Island. Have you ever heard of DKNY, the fashion mm-hmm. brand, Delicare care in New York? My boss thought that was a really funny joke, and it's <laughs> always really hard to answer the phone, even after all this time. But we're a commercial shop, so we're set up to do business cards, wedding invitations, posters, anything that, you know, some element of letterpress printing. I met Dan, who's the shop owner, actually at RISD. He was teaching the first iteration of a letterpress printing class in the printmaking department. And I had really wanted to study letterpress printing. RISD wasn't teaching a class that I had access to. So I actually took a class at AS220 when I was a junior, which is how I got looped in there. And then Dan started to teach the class in printmaking. So I started working for Dan part-time, maybe a year out of school. And when we started, it was just me part-time in a smaller garage studio. But we moved about 11 years ago, and now there are three full-time employees Mm. plus Dan. So we've really grown quite a bit. And as much as I wish I could say that I just run a press all day, which would be great, Mm -hmm. I primarily look at my computer and talk to clients and learn about their wedding plan Mm -hmm. and the non-traditional traditional wedding that they're having and some (laughs) design work and getting everything ready to kick over to the production side of things. So it's a lot of problem solving day to day, which is great. And we have a ton of equipment, which is a little unusual for a letterpress shop. So I can also make my own work there, which is really nice. Yeah. Is that where you were introduced to letterpress as a side of printmaking? So that was really through that class at RISD, but it really was where I started to understand the commercial side of printing because a lot of us have studied fine art printmaking techniques, etching, lithography, silkscreen, but there is sort of this whole other side of printing that is usually not at the same level in terms of cost and volume, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. I can spend three weeks making 10 etchings. I can spend one hour making 100 letterpress prints. So for me, that accessibility was really interesting as someone who thought, okay, not a lot of people are going to buy this etching, but I can sure make a lot more letterpress prints and give them away or sell them for $5 or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so was text and words or and poetry, was that often a part of your work even before this introduction to the way that that side of things intersects with printmaking? Or did that sort of find its way in through a new medium? I think that's really through working at the shop and just being surrounded by letters day in and day out. I would also say, too, because I was so interested in the technique of printmaking, and I think there are some other printmakers that will be with me, sometimes making the print is more interesting than the concept of the print, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I really wish I had waited to go to art school for a while because I didn't have a lot to say as an 18 or 19-year-old. But the work that I started to make around 2016 or 2017 that is more text-based does deal with more of my family's history. And so that is a story that I feel like I have authority to tell and also Mm. to invite people into. Yeah, absolutely. Because your practice engages with your family's story of incarceration. Do Do you feel comfortable sharing that 
with the Hello Print friend listeners to to give context to probably what will be a lot of the rest of the, the conversation. Definitely. Okay, good. So my grandmother on my dad's side was living with her family outside of San Diego and was forcibly relocated to post in Arizona at an incarceration site for Japanese Americans. So she was there from 1942 to 1945. And then the family moved to Salt Lake City after they were released. So it it's something that she didn't really talk about readily. And in fact, my dad tells a story that he was in 10th grade in history class, learned about Japanese American incarceration, came home and said, mom, you're never going to believe what happened to us. She said, yeah, it was a pretty terrible time. So it was so guarded and just not well shared history. So for me, I started to make this work actually right after she passed away. And the timing just happened to be that, but I think also it sort of gave me a little bit more license uh, to make the work. And I've noticed, at least on the East Coast now, the education around incarceration is just a little less than the Mm. West Coast. So people from California or the mountain region will sort of have a better or more in-depth historical understanding. So with a lot of my work, I try to say, okay, let's not make something that's going to hit people over the head, but rather gives them an entry point to learn about the history and also understand that a lot of these things are still happening to this day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Before that, had you done work around family history before? Was this something, an identity that was was interesting to you? Or did this come maybe, as you said, like around with your grandmother's passing? And of course, those generational moments, I think, always make us start to think about legacy Mm -hmm. and time and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, this work really started about six years after I was out of school. So I had been continuously making prints here or there, participating in group shows, But for me, I had an opportunity to show work with the owner of the print shop and thought, okay, you know, he's going to be showing text-based work. I'm also thinking about showing text-based work. This seems like the perfect place to sort of try out these ideas. And with that early text-based work, it's pulling from a lot of government propaganda posters Mm -hmm. and just omitting certain information. So sometimes people will see a print that just says the word notice and think like, oh, is this about like a, a warning or construction? Or it's really interesting to see, you know, we make things, we have no idea how they'll be received. So it's always really interesting to see where people end up when you're starting that work. But, you know, I would say that the personal history side of things didn't really come about until quite a few years after school, I feel like I needed to grow up a little bit and figure out who I was and what was going on. So as we all do, and are probably still doing. I think one of the, of your pieces that really, when you're talking about the words being omitted that I was thinking of was the one that says instructions to all persons of blank ancestry. And it doesn't say blank because I realize I'm trying to explain a a visual piece on an audio (laughs) medium. So it just literally is a blank on the paper. Yeah, exactly. And that void in that piece also allows people to say like, oh, this is about me. This is about Mm. a group that I'm connected to. So people have also expressed interest in it for their own identity, which has also been interesting. And I'll say too, that piece is, and a lot of the works from that series are based or printed using metal type that would have been almost the same Mm. as would have been used in the original printing. So at DWI, we have a hot metal casting department, so we can actually cast new metal type from brass molds that have been around for as long as that original government printing that I'm basing the work off of. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so you, you spoke a little bit to it, but I'd love to hear a little more what reactions you get to the work. Sure. I mean, generally, I will say the work has been pretty well received. If I can talk to people in person, I find that to be particularly true. I mean, the great thing about having work in a gallery is that people get to come in, they get to ask you questions, they get to read your artist statement, which sometimes online, there's just not that discourse, if you can believe it. Sometimes people jump to conclusions <laughs> on the internet. What? I know. So, And not my internet. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up for yours, please. Um, you know, so being able to talk to people and and let them know that I am the human who made this artwork. This mm. is my story. I'm happy to tell you more about it. I'm happy to listen to concerns that you have. That has been a pretty rewarding experience. Where things usually go a little sideways is that in Rhode Island, there's a holiday called Victory Day, which is celebrated the second Monday of August. And a lot of other states celebrated this holiday as Victory Over Japan Day or VJ Day. Mm. And most Rhode Islanders will call this VJ Day or Victory Over Japan Day. So as a, a student who graduated and then was coming to work in Rhode Island, I was so confused why everyone was taking off the second Monday in August Mm -hmm. and then very confused to learn, okay, so what are we celebrating? Is this another Veterans Day? Like, is there a parade? What what happens? Then to discover that everyone goes to the beach because it is Rhode Island. We have great beaches and Monday in August, you can't beat that. So in 2019, I started to think, can I make a poster that proposes a different name for this holiday? So I thought about Beach Day, Ocean State Day, Lobster Roll Day, Mayor's Bay Day, because there's a Governor's Bay Day, if you can believe it. (laughs) And I hung those up around town with a a hashtag, Rename Victory Day. And I I was pretty new to Instagram at that point, which I can't believe I'm saying. But (laughs) I thought, okay, the hashtag will tell me if people are looking at it, because I didn't understand how Instagram worked. But I got a lot of feedback. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad. People sort of come at me thinking, okay, why do you hate veterans? Clearly. Yeah. And that work has continued for the last few years. We had a bill that was introduced last year. There was a testimony, which was an amazing experience to understand the legislative process is really slow. And so the artist's job is to make an issue more visible, but not necessarily to fix it partly because that process is just expensive, time-consuming to get anything through to that next level. So I'm optimistic that maybe in the next decade we're going to make a shift, but, you know, who knows? Mm, Yeah, that's – yeah, I feel like that really gets to, like, the the heart in there of this sort of tender, squishy bits of Americana – which is anytime you're going anywhere near history, particularly World War II, because I feel like people are like, no, 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 no. That's the last time we were the good guys. (laughs) (laughs) You can't take that from us, you know? And as we continue to move forward in time, the lens through which we understand it is ever evolving. And if we're not using that lens, this is where we cannot learn from history. Exactly. And holidays in general are particularly fraught. In Rhode Island, there's another artist named Eli Nixon who's doing amazing work around a floating holiday called Blood Tide and thinking about Columbus Day. What do these Mm. holidays actually mean? And instead creating a day that is more of a community event where we can all come together. 
And I think with the victory day work too, again, if I can talk to somebody one-on-one, generally it's an easier conversation or at least a conversation versus an email on my website that has some funny grammar that I can laugh about because it's a terrible email or Mm -hmm. Instagram when things really go sideways quickly and it's like, okay, I forgot I can just turn off the comments. That's a thing. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and you've also had like a really large public work, the mural you did last year as well, which again, speaking of putting work out into the world and Mm -hmm. having it received, this is a a massive text piece that um, is pretty unignorable. (laughs) Yeah, this was a a really fun commission through a Rhode Island nonprofit called My Home Court that works with Providence College Galleries to select a local artist or someone from out of town to work on a resurfaced basketball court at a local park. So I was really lucky to work at a park that was really close to my old apartment and to get a sense of the neighborhood because I was already around. Mm -hmm. And thinking too, public art is a tricky thing. Generally, you're not going to get 100%. Hey, we love it. So it was trying to balance using text and also not offending anyone terribly. And I think because I also have that background in commercial printing, I was thinking of this as different layers and different spot colors, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. not designing a mural that was going to be 30 different colors or 30 different passes, but keeping things in that pretty classic CMYK spin. Yeah. And what text did you actually put on the mural? Oh, yeah. So the text on the mural is words associated with play or run or together in different languages that are reflected in the community. So Spanish, Portuguese, Khmer. And for the Khmer text, I actually, and with all of the text, I scanned wood type at uh, DWRI, which was maybe an inch or an inch and a half tall turn that into a vector. And then for the camera, I actually ended up taking those vectors and sort of jamming them into the right letter forms mm. with a good proofreader because that wood type we just don't have. Yeah. But aesthetically, we want I wanted it to match everything else. Yeah, I was curious about that aspect of it because I'm sure it would be really, really interesting to get a hold of camera type, wish. original type. Yeah. But that would could be a whole PhD project probably in of itself. Yes. Maybe someone will just give us some unrestricted grant money. Does that still happen? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly for like like really niche interests. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so does the the mural stay for a year until the, the next artist does paint on it? Or how, how long is it up for? The murals are permanent, okay. which is great. So and it's not so the, the same basketball court. No, they hop around to all oh, different cool, cool. parks, okay. which is really amazing. And I was really lucky to work with another nonprofit called Elevated Thought to actually do the painting of the mural. So this is a great stepping stone portfolio-wise because I have this big public art piece now in my portfolio, but I didn't have to jump feet first into the actual painting of the mural, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Because that that is a whole other skill set and design yes. and all of that. We do not have and aren't quite ready to lie about yet <laughs> on an application. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think that it's really interesting to, to hear your story as someone who 
seems to be really working in the art world in this really intelligent way where you've got the teaching, you've got the commercial side, and then also getting to partner with civic organizations as well. I mean, I I think that that is the closest artists can come to in this day and age of being just a working artist. Mm -hmm. And I had someone on a podcast a few episodes ago who was really talking about how for students, we need to stop holding this 1960s image of what it means to be a working artist. Because that idea that you will just get a representation in a gallery somewhere in New York and you'll get a cute little place on the Upper West Side and you'll just paint and someone will send you checks. Like it just truly doesn't exist anymore. And it seems like you're you're living that that balance where you need to be able to wear different hats of sort of educator and grant writer and the person who talks to someone about their non-traditional traditional wedding <laughs> and graphic design. And so I'm curious of, how you sort of knew to do this? Was this something that was trial and error? Did you have mentors who who said, Lois, it's diversification is going to be the key here? Because in a way, I think it is the dream. It's what we all want to be doing is, is to be doing things that in some ways in every aspect of our life touch our creative practice. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, to loop back to what you were saying, I'm glad that you talked about the the dream of, art school and that that really doesn't exist. I mean, maybe one out of how many mm-hmm. will end up there. But also I think for me, what attracted me to print most is it's such a community-based art form. You know, there's always other people's in the shop. There's always a clean hands person. You're always asking people for advice versus this idea of the like solo icon and the solo artist. I think in terms of diversification, part of it was really from knowing that I wanted to try to pay off my loans as fast as possible Mm -hmm. in Providence and thought, okay, what are art adjacent jobs that I can get where I can get a little bit of what's happening without fully committing to something? Um, And Providence is really good at a lot of part-time jobs. I'm not sure if that's true everywhere, but, you know, sure, I was um, working at a restaurant, working at AS220 teaching classes. I was also working part-time at a gallery. So I got to learn about what does inventory look like? How to make wall labels, things like that, yeah. that I still use to this day. I mean, in theory, I should be using inventory more, but certainly there's just a drawer of prints that will never get looked at again. <laughs> but through that experience of trying to figure out how to piece together enough work to rent an apartment and figure out how to make keep making prints and just being able to find those art jobs, I think that really helped me out. And I think with some of these bigger bigger projects that have come along, I think some of that is just from being in one place for so long and knowing a lot of people, if that makes sense. Not necessarily a pitch for networking, but it's hard for people to get behind community-based work if you're just sort of there for two years at grad school or visiting for a semester. So I think to me, staying in one place really, really helped me out too. I think that that's really beautiful advice because a lot of artists and people in the art world in general and in arts administration and galleries, I think they do often get the advice that you need to be moving. You need to be Mm -hmm. constantly doing this and going somewhere else and getting to the bigger city and hustling harder in that way where I am someone who has moved a ton, particularly in the last few years. And 
usually I've found that things really start to open up about 18 months to 24 Mm -hmm. months into living somewhere where all of a sudden you're starting to get that community and the people who have connections and resources that align with your values and what you're trying to do in the world. It really takes that long for that to happen. And so that's usually immediately when I move, right? You know, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) but I have noticed that. And, and so what you're saying about really finding a place and choosing to make it your home has really beautiful benefits as well, you know, as the popping around and always chasing like the, the next opportunity. It's just, yeah, it's, it's apples and oranges. And I think in terms of, you know, making a lasting impression on a place, the making your roots also has a larger impact as well. If you right. lay down. Yeah. In one yeah. Place. And I think what you said about sticking around in a place long enough to be at the top of somebody's speed dial is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can't do this project, but Miranda can. Here's her contact information. So, And I'll also say, too, I think some things that I've done have been a little circuitous to some other art paths because I – I have a BFA. I don't have an MFA. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the networky things you learn – I'm assuming you learn with the MFA. I'm coming at through – residencies through other ways to meet other artists. Yeah. And I think that idea of the MFA being a networking place, I think that varies greatly too. I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people go really hoping that that'll happen and they just end up in a different situation because their advisor is showing at the VS. Venice Biennale that year and they don't have any time for them, you know, in their second year or something like that. Sounds so real, Miranda. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. As an adjunct professor or a full-time professor, the school really wants you to make your own artwork and like exhibiting. It is um, really hard, I found at least, to balance making my own work and also just teaching because it is just, you know, it's great and I love it, but it's just such a different speed, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. I'm absolutely. not at the B- Venice Biennale, but you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's, yeah, one of the things that I always tell people if they're not in the arts, because I have friends who are living in Manhattan and doing insurance for investment companies, fancy, fancying something, something business stocks. And Mm -hmm. I always tell them if they are hiring anyone, they should look at people from the arts because I say they are used to doing so much with so little. They are used to multitasking. They are so used to pivoting and they're used to thinking like five steps ahead. Totally. And so if you find someone who does want to get out of the arts, I do think that we do so much and and truly more than other industries because the few times I've had jobs outside of that, like directly outside of the arts, I've always been shocked by how little I'm asked to do. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be like, wait a minute, you're telling me I have to write this and it's due in 10 days? (gasps) Oh my gosh, that's so far away. Not two hours. (laughs) Like it's, yeah, I, we're the an incredible untapped resource for for the business world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then too, and I think this goes maybe into 
um, another aspect of some of your projects, I'm thinking of that I had other plans, that idea of being in a community and being a part of that community in a really meaningful way when something world changing like the pandemic happens and then seeing the people around you respond to it and and seeing how your community shifts when you're not, there's, there's a visitor so much. I mean, that has to be a really different experience too, I would guess. Yeah. So this was an exhibition at AS220 in 2021. Is that right, Miranda? I'm mm-hmm. looking at you because I think you've got all the information that has fallen out of my brain. <laughs> and this was the height of the pandemic or the one of the down curves or up curves, who remembers at this point. But I had had this date on the calendar and, you know, the pandemic, I think, did something screwy to a lot of folks' brains in terms of planning, making things. Mm-hmm. So this felt like something that I was glad that I ended up completing, but there were a few touch-and-go minutes. And big shout-out to Neil Walsh, who's the gallery director at AS220 and the most patient person with like, oh, yeah, yeah, I need, do need your price list, but sure, sure, sure. Give me, yeah, you got another day or two. Sure. Bless those gallerists. <laughs> and Neil has been there for so long and is so good at just like a very calm energy as you're like, here's this box of frames. Where do they go? But that show had a few different pieces, a poster that said Stop Asian Hate, which was a response to the spa shooting in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And that filled a front gallery window on the street. And then it also had a series of nautical signal flags that have a geometric shape in the middle and then a single line saying below. And some of them turn into these sort of metaphors that get a little strange, Mm -hmm. but some others are, I have a pilot on board, things that are pretty dry too. Mm -hmm. And those flags, I was interested in thinking of nonverbal ways of communicating that couldn't be misinterpreted. Oh, interesting. even within that, people were sort of like, oh, this one, I, I'm reading it this way. And I was like, well, it actually says just the thing that it says, but okay, that's that's great. And partly that was a response to the election and how everything had gotten so skewed depending on what news source you were looking at. So I was just thinking of what is, you can't refute what this is saying. It says it on the thing. And then the other big piece in that show was a whole wall of folded coral strips of paper that all had numbers on them. And the uh, numbers were made with a numbering machine, which is a commercial letterpress technique that there's a machine that has a spool of numbers. And anytime the press hits the numbering machine, it advances. Mm. So it's an easy way to go from number one to number 2,500 in the span of about a half hour. And so the strips of paper were all hung and each one represented a COVID death in the Mm. state of Rhode Island. So I went about once every week to update as the numbers ticked up. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to see that change and shift a little bit. Lois, that's like incredibly heavy though. I mean, to be like the the keeper of that visual record, like what was that like for you, I guess, during that time? Yeah, I think for me it was people were trying to figure out how to memorialize what was happening as it was still happening. And so this was a way to just consistently update and just to show the data in a different way. I think sometimes we just see a number and it's really not clear how many people that actually is. So it was cathartic in a way to have some type of a visual representation. And I think for me too, 
that piece was a good sort of jumping off point to thinking about print as installation a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes print goes on a wall and that's great, but also it's nice sometimes when other things are happening, but using print as that anchoring media. Yeah. I'm I'm curious a bit about the the signals element that you were talking about earlier, the the flags and this idea of nonverbal communication that can't be misinterpreted, which is so interesting to me, in part because I really connect with what you're saying about during that the say that I was going to say the the deepest, darkest days of the Trump administration, (laughs) but considering he's looking like he's going to get the nomination again, like I'm like, maybe we haven't seen anything yet. I don't know if I want to like curse, Mm -hmm. have that much hubris. So let's just say during the Trump administration, how it just really felt like two, two, as you say, news sources or even two people could receive the same facts, like the same indisputable objective information. And the output was just so wildly different and how it just felt so ungrounding and disturbing of like, of like this post truth, this post objective reality era. Mm -hmm. And so the, you said it's that the flags are, were paired with a phrase it was the phrase what the flag says in nautical language, or was it something that you had added? No, this was a totally straight okay. copying of that international language. And there are a few different versions depending on the country, but they're they're mostly universal. So the great thing is that even if there's no radio, you have a, the ability to communicate visually. Gotcha. That is so interesting. But when I think the other thing about nautical flags is that they're also, they're so beautiful too. Mm-hmm. So it's not only is it, I think in theory, at least this, as you say, the, the, the nonverbal cross language more or less way of communicating, but they just are also really graphic and seem to have an element almost of graphic design to them. Mm-hmm. I think in, in the colors and the choices and the balance and, and all of that. So that's, yeah, really interesting. Well, and that's that's to another situation where these read as very beautiful objects unless you want to get more into the meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think letterpress worked particularly well for these because the shapes are just pushed into the surface of the sheet. So it always becomes a little more sculptural in a way. And this project, I was really lucky to be able to hire a coworker, Hope Anderson, who also works at DWRI, who I think is a better, far better printer than I am. Not I think she is. <laughs> so as I've gotten a little farther into my career, understanding that I also can't be everywhere at once, maybe mm. because I slipped a deadline, usually it's probably that, or I just need to do two things at once, being able to have a little bit more resourcing behind me to say like, yes, I can pay you X to print this. You're going to do a great job. I don't have to think about it ever again. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice place to be in. (laughs) Just thinking about my, my own creative journeys too. And just, and I think some of that artistic maturity that we were speaking to earlier of realizing that you are allowed to give yourself grace and give someone an opportunity to create through your vision Mm-hmm. And it doesn't lessen anything. I think is is also a lesson that at nineteen and twenty, I I would I would think that I 
could never understand. <laughs> no. And I actually just went to an artist lecture for the next artist who did a basketball court in Providence, Sanford Biggers, mm-hmm. who I'm glad that I didn't have to follow him and got to go before him. But he talked about his studio in such a nice way. I think he's got a big team of people that work mm-hmm. with him, mm-hmm. which makes sense because the scale of his work is huge. And, you know, it made me realize like, oh, right. Being able to work with a team of people, as you said, trust them to make some of the minute decisions or suggest a better way than whatever hobbled together way you're going to do it is a really nice place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this idea that art is inherently collaborative, mm-hmm. almost whether or not you want to admit it, like you were taught by someone, you were, you've you seen things and picked things up, you've been inspired by them. Like you weren't born into a sterile cube and started making, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not how life works. So it's just a really healthy thing. And I think a really accurate way to think about the making processes as as part of this collective human organism that we are, that we're all contributing to it and we're all making. Yeah. Exactly. And I think too, when people ask me about my creative practice, it's not just the studio work that I make and put on the wall. It's everything that's sort of wrapped into that, whether or not it's something that's productive or looks productive. You know, a lot of my work goes in big ebbs and flows. So sometimes I'm super productive for the one week in my studio when I have a deadline or I'm spending three months researching or thinking about a project or thinking about projects that don't go anywhere. So I think the internet is a tricky place because I get to see what cool things people are making. But there is always that moment of like, man, people are making so much (laughs) stuff. Whereas I'm like working a lot at my day job this week. Aaron Coleman, I'm thinking about you in particular. I know you're on a sabbatical this year, but (laughs) stop going into your studio for like a week. (laughs) You won't. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, part of that is just to know that like, that's their creative journey and you have yours and like, you're not saying what they're saying. Like you need to say what comes out of your own creative journey and it can't be identical to someone else's too. Is that an important lesson too? Yeah, totally. It's however you're working is working for you. You know, I personally am a procrastinator, which I can now (laughs) say out loud, but now I know that that's just going to happen in a project and it's hard to write into a grant, but I know that I need to leave time for that. So Mm. Yeah, right? That would be a really lovely grant application, though, I feel like. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. As I try to finish it at 11.55 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that with that piece, it, or that, that, that whole exhibition, I should say, you got to start thinking about print as more than just, it is a square, it goes in a frame, it goes on a wall, that sort of thing. And have you explored that anymore or is that percolating a bit for you, sort of speaking of like the the non-making side of making? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I guess, was preceded in 2020 by another renamed Victory Day project where I actually hired a banner towing plane to carry a message across Rhode Island beaches of renamed Victory Day on Victory Day. And again, that was sort of a more conceptual piece because Mm -hmm. I had really nothing to do with making it, but was really lucky that the plane company was excited I was an artist and said, hey, yeah, come down early, proofread it, take pictures. And so I hired a photographer, which was great because as somebody who's not as familiar with time-based work, the grant doesn't know what's happened if you don't have photographs to somehow show what's going on. Mm. And so with that piece 
you know, I always like the idea of getting work out of the gallery setting because I think sometimes people don't know that they can go to galleries or aren't going to galleries. So that took the work to the people that I wanted to reach the most. And that project was big in terms of scale because the letters were each five feet long. But it was also a a big financial push. So I actually did a little crowdfunding on Instagram. And I think that was successful because it allowed people to say, hey, I like what you're doing. I can support you. Here's $5. Here's $10. So it was a lot of small contributions and people felt more engaged with the work, which was always something that I hadn't quite figured out. I still haven't figured out a newsletter. That's always on the administrative bucket list that falls off of my desk. (laughs) But with that piece and then in Last year, I was lucky to receive a grant to be able to make a new suite of prints that were accompanied by a penny press. So these are things you would see at a zoo or amusement park. And again, thinking about ways to make prints that aren't necessarily reliant on a gallery. So that feels a little more installation-based too. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw your penny press project because it just was another one of those things where I think, of course that's printmaking. Right. You know, like, and, and when you're a kid and you're at the zoo and you're bugging mom and dad for the two quarters and the penny and trying to pick the shiniest penny so you get the best print and that sort of thing. I love that that, that now is is a part of printmaking in my mind as well. So can, can you talk more about maybe the, the conception of that and, and what the the outcomes are when people interact with it? Sure. So the um, print series and penny machine are called Wish You Were Here. And the six prints are based on WPA style travel posters. But instead of pictures of the West, they're actually Japanese American incarceration sites. So sites that aren't necessarily the most glamorous, but are depicted in a bright, colorful way Mm. that sort of is meant to evoke that warmer visual style. And the posters are all paired, or the posters are paired with the Penny Press, which has four extra incarceration sites. So for me, it was important that the Penny Press looked like the real souvenir thing. So I actually hired my sister to do some research for me as to how to buy one of these things, which was a little confusing. And was lucky to have this project-based grant from the Interlace Project Fund, which is Providence-specific. And that allowed me to buy this penny machine with the artwork. And the artwork on the pennies was an interesting process because I sent over really complicated pennies because I've seen Uh some pretty detailed pennies. Yeah. And the penny press company, I worked with this very nice woman named Cindy, said, this is is too much. How about this? And so it was actually a collaboration between the two of us to end up with the artwork we ended up with. Mm. And for me... The penny press brings people into my work in a totally new level. They have to pick the penny. They have to put the money in. And then it's their labor, which I think is such an interesting thing to think about. They have to physically crank the penny before it comes out. And it's been really interesting. People go to the machine. They know what the machine is. And they don't necessarily care what's on the penny. Right. So that's an interesting moment. People are coming into it at whatever level they want. But now that penny machine lives in the studio and in theory I can swap out the die so you could get another four images. Yeah. That's so interesting. I didn't even think of that element of the receiver of the artwork is making it with this form that you as the artist created. That's fascinating mm-hmm. and super interesting. And I do remember the penny machines that they do actually take some oomph. It's a little, yeah, you to gotta, get around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to put your back into it. Exactly. <laughs> wow. And then that idea of, cause the, the coins themselves, they have 
what looked like to, to me images of buildings that people would have been forced to live in. And so this really flipping that association of the penny press was something that is so childhood memory and holiday and lightness and turning it on its head into something that is still a part of history. So the same way you might go and, and get a penny at a museum, you can do this. Yeah. For the part of history that's sort of often, as you say, forgotten or ignored. And then that whole element of an artwork that you put in your pocket and Mm -hmm. then carry around and an artwork that is destroying some American currency Mm -hmm. is really interesting too. There's so much in there. Hey, Lois. (laughs) Yeah. And I think for me too, it also thinks about the concept of dark tourism. So a lot of people Mm. go to tourist sites that are a battlefield, a graveyard. These incarceration sites, I think, fall into that umbrella. So reclaiming that visitation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And with that project in particular, research has gotten a little trickier with the pandemic. So I've been relying on a lot of online sources, primarily the Library of Congress. And that website is amazing. Highly recommend it to everyone to take a peek at, partly for me, because the images that I'm referencing were usually paid for also by the government as WPA right. photographers. So understanding that there's always a bias with any archive but being able to use that to then build up sort of a, a more robust picture of the history, if that makes sense, is something that's also really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. We got to get your prints in the Library of Congress collection. I that think that's great. the only way to complete the cycle. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? Oh, my Library of Congress listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a, a couple things have, have come to mind in this. And, and one was just wondering if you'd followed at all the movement in Australia to rename Australia Day? No, I haven't. So Australia Day is historically a celebration of the first Western settlement in Australia. And so it's a huge day of mourning and protest for Aboriginal people. And, you know, there's many suggestions to rename it like Day of Mourning or Mm -hmm. things like that. And so... Anyway, it might just be interesting for your practice to see how people are engaging with that, the, the, the sometimes the civil disobedience around mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Yeah. When I was, I didn't know about it either until I, I lived in Australia for, for two years. And luckily in the arts, you're with progressive, interesting, politically engaged people usually. And so as print has this amazing connection, of course, between protest and often sometimes civil disobedience and printmaking in the history. There were print shops that around Australia Day that I would be involved Mm. in who would be making a lot of posters and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. for it. And then the other just question, I just wondered if you knew Haley Takahashi's work at all? No. Oh, Big Banners? Yes. 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 Okay. I do know. Yeah. Okay. Great work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I think a lot of folks in our generation or near it Mm -hmm. have a similar experience where that history just was never taught about. So I think being able to make the work is also another way of sort of processing, but also understanding everybody has their different histories around it. Mm. And I think for me, as someone who is Japanese American, it's also tricky to make work that feels, am I identifying more with that side of things, less with that side of things? Being an insider or outsider, I think also helps to make that work. So I'd love to 
to talk to another artist. So yeah, yeah, she definitely. I've heard her talk about some of those exact same yeah things too, because I'm sure it's all really complicated. And I think part of, in a way, this larger project that millennials and Gen Zers are taking on of of wanting to break codes of silence, of wanting to bring things to the surface to be healed. And it's complicated, right? Because I feel like, well, well, who am I to tell others in my family how to deal with their traumas, right? But at the same time, we know unequivocally, scientifically, that trauma is passed down through one's genes. Mm -hmm. Like that is not up for debate. (laughs) And so that idea that it is it is a part of me, not just in a, a spiritual or psychic level, but also in a physical level. And then how much, because of that, how much agency do I get to claim over it in the way that I process it? These are huge questions that I think we're all trying to figure out. I know. I wish there were more art therapist speed dial lines. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, Lois, I can't believe we're already been chatting. Oh my gosh, get out of here. More than an hour. (laughs) It's just gone by super fast. And I just have so much admiration for the work that you're doing and how brilliantly you're thinking about it. And so thank you for for being out in the world and and doing it and sharing it with all of us. And yeah, I'd love to give you an opportunity to, do you have any projects coming up you want people to know about anything to to shout out oh man this is i should have known this question was coming not at the minute i think i am going to be working on an exhibition for sgc is coming to province that was going to be my April. question yeah um so i'm working on that also at as220 and then right now this time of year it's really been about grant and residency applications mm-hmm. so I'm not quite in that making stage yet but I'm really excited to see everyone when you come to Providence which I hope Miranda are you coming I'll be there yeah okay yeah. good <laughs> absolutely yeah I'm really really excited to yeah to go back to Providence as you've spoken of it really is a beautiful town and and Rhode Island is an, is a beautiful state so everyone should go and see Lois's work there and check out the great poster scene (laughs) and and do all of that. So where can people find you and follow you and see your work and and reach out and that thing? Sure. So I am on uh, the internet. So my website is loisharada.com and that's where I'm at on Instagram too. So those are usually the two easiest places to find me. And as soon as I get that studio assistant, maybe there will be a newsletter or more frequent Instagram posts. Who knows? Yeah. That when you said like the newsletter always getting pushed off the table, I was like, oh, such a hard same. It's just like when you're functioning at capacity, the very idea of like oh. sitting down and like writing something that's interesting and doesn't have any typos is like oh. and sending it out to people it's it always gets pushed back even though people always say it's 
it's such a great way. But anyway, so that's okay. Maybe 2025, <laughs> 2024. What year am I in? Who knows? I like next that. year. I love that you said 2025 because <laughs> that gives me a whole nother year. That's so to far make away. it my goal. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> we have to get through the next election cycle first, and then I can think about newsletters. <laughs> that's right. I love that. Yeah. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks so much, Lois. I can't wait to share this. And that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Karen Ravis. We talk about how at 62, Karen is in the most productive and joyful period of her artistic journey. Through coming to understand her process deeply, inviting in the muse and knowing when to take a break, moving from abstract to figurative art mid-career, knowing when a gallery is right for you, and so much more. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next time.